I love this time of year. The weather is changing, we've all got our jackets on. <laughs> or at least we're turning the air conditioning on in our house and putting our jackets on and looking outside wistfully. Football has started. Football has started. That's right. Hunting season has begun. This is a wonderful time. The days are getting a little shorter. The holidays are coming. I love this time of year. Moreover, our summer vacations are all over, which is a dad of three, almost four kids. That's good news. All of our, my coworkers are back, things are kicking up at work, and I love my job, and a lot of big projects are coming down the pike, and I'm excited about this season. But one of the warnings, one of the cautions that I have to remind myself of frequently, one of the temptations that I can fall into is I can make those things that I enjoy, that I love, I can make them into my identity. I can make my status as a, a, a fan of something, or I can make my status as a hard worker or a, or, or a successful leader, I can make my status into my identity. I can shape my entire life around it. It can begin to consume me. Perhaps some of us who are football fans know what that might be like as we're currently right now on our cell phones checking our fantasy football scores. He said passive-aggressively from the pulpit. <laughs> there are others of us who don't like this season. We recognize that the days are growing shorter and that the holidays are among us and that the family is getting back together, the vacations and the distractions are over and we're reminded not of the things we enjoy but of our own brokenness whether it's the things that we have done or the things that have been done to us, for us, for some of us, in this season, it is a dark time, a time of loneliness and pain. And regardless of where you're at, maybe tempted to allow your status to define you or tempted to allow your brokenness to define you, I'm glad you're here today. Today, we're gonna continue on in our sermon series called Disciple. It's a study in the Gospel of Mark. And in this chapter, by the way, this is my favorite chapter in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at four people and what it means to be, we're going to ex explore and expand our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, for many of us, that word disciple, it's a weird word. We don't often use the word outside of conversations like this. Am I right? I thought we had a little rapport going. We talked about football, thought we were friends. Like, do you guys use the word disciple outside of conversations like this? No, it's kind of a weird word. So why are we using the word? Well, I think Jesus was intentional in using the word disciple because there's no other word quite like it. You see, there can be students who learn from a teacher without any real relationship with the teacher. And there can be followers that pursue a leader without any real relationship with the leader. But the word disciple is like a student. It's also like a follower but it implies relationship. You see, when Jesus says to us, go and make disciples, when he says, follow me as one of my disciples, he's calling us not into a student-teacher relationship, although that's part of it. He's not simply calling us into a uh, leader-follower relationship, although that is also part of it. He's calling us into a relationship with him into which he is known and we are known by him. You see, Jesus wants people to know him. That's why he calls us to be his disciples. Now, what type of people does Jesus call to be his disciples? I'm glad you asked. 
Today, we're going to look at four people in Mark chapter 5 to discover three specific things. Number one, who does Jesus call? Number two, what does Jesus call them? And number three, what does it cost Jesus to make that call? Who does Jesus call? What does Jesus call them? And what does it cost Jesus to make that call? Now, in honor of football season, uh, we're going to do something a little bit differently today. If you've ever watched a football game, especially back in the day, like the John Madden days when he was commenting, uh, oftentimes during a play, he would draw on the screen to highlight different things about the play that was going on. And today, I have my John Madden pen. (laughs) And we're going to explore the text together. And as long as I don't mess this up, I think it'll be helpful to us today. Although I could completely mess it up, and then we'll just keep going because God is good all the time. How about that? So we're going to look at four people, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to give us a quick overview of the story of Mark chapter 5. We're going to zoom in on those four characters and see if we can discover the type of people, who it is that Jesus calls, what he calls them, and then finally what it costs for him to call them. So the four people that we're going to look at today are a tormented outcast, a wealthy leader, a dying girl, and an afflicted loner. Four people that Jesus calls in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Now, let me give you a quick overview of chapter 5. Where we pick up the scene is Jesus has just gotten done uh, commanding the wind and the waves. He says, peace be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. And if you uh, were here last week, you heard Pastor Matt give a great sermon uh, where he showcased the power of Jesus over nature. It was a power play. And the disciples are amazed. In fact, they're even afraid. And then they land in this place called the land of the Gerasenes. And right when they land, this person comes running at them. I mean, this is a very vivid scene. They get off the boat, and this person comes running at them from the tombs. So he's coming at them from the tombs, and it's obvious that this man is disturbed. He's obviously troubled. And he runs up to Jesus. And instead of him speaking, it's interesting, the spirit that was tormenting him actually speaks to Jesus. And this man is a mess. He is a tormented outcast. He's outcast because the people in his community kicked him out of their community because of what was afflicting him. He was scaring them. It says that uh, day and night he would cut himself and scream, and so they kicked him out of the city because they didn't want to be around him. And here he sees Jesus, and he comes running up to Jesus, and Jesus casts out the evil spirit, and the man is healed. And then the townspeople find him in his right mind, and they are terrified, and they ask Jesus to leave. Leave us, they say. And so Jesus leaves. He gets back in the boat with his disciples, and they go back across the water. And when they land, right as they land, not a a very tormented soul running up to him, but another person runs up to him. And it's a wealthy leader. And the wealthy leader runs up to Jesus, and he pleads with Jesus, and he says, my daughter is dying Please, come with me. Come with me to my daughter and heal my daughter. And Jesus says, okay. And so we're introduced not only to the wealthy leader, but also to a dying little girl. The text says she was about 12 years old. And on the way, Jesus uh, is on the way to this wealthy leader's house. And then there's an interruption. This woman who had had uh, an affliction, the text says that she had what was called a flow of blood, She would have been rendered ritually unclean. She would have been in her society to be considered untouchable. It's highly likely that she was absolutely alone. 
And moreover, the text says that she had used all of her wealth to try to get better. And so she's alone and she's without power and she just desperately needs help and healing. And she reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak and she's healed. And Jesus stops. Remember, they're on the way to the wealthy leader's house. And Jesus stops and turns and invites this woman who was an outcast, invites her into a relationship with him. And then they go, excuse me, before they continue on, some of the servants from the wealthy leader's house come to him and say, your daughter is dead. No need to trouble the teacher any longer. But Jesus says, stop fearing, believe. And then they keep going back to that wealthy leader's house. And then the chapter ends shortly after that. This is one of my favorite chapters. If you're a Christian, I'm so glad you're here today. I wanna to invite you into this account to know your savior better. If you're not a Christian, and maybe you're still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, I wanna invite you into this as well. Number one, I think that you can appreciate just the value of this story in and of itself. It's written so beautifully. It's a wonderful compare and contrast between these four figures. But I also want you to see, I want you to, to maybe even think through, is there not something supernatural at work here in this account? And perhaps the risen Lord would reveal himself to you today. And so we see these four people. So let's zoom in. We'll take a look uh, at the text here. Remember the setting at the beginning of chapter five. Jesus has just gotten done saying, peace be still to the wind and the waves. And then they go to this land of the Gerasenes. And as he gets off the boat, you see in chapter five, as soon as he got up out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. Now, as we go through this, we're going to do this together. Now, I know that that, you know that might sound a little intimidating. Don't worry. You're in a crowd. I'm by myself. I'm the most vulnerable one here. So if you yell out something that I don't pick up, don't worry about it. Uh, just feel, feel the freedom to know that I can't actually see you, uh, as, uh, you know, individually with the lights and everything. So feel free to, to shout stuff out. Uh, it, it, I'm going to ask some questions. But what I want you to focus on is I want you to look at three things between each of these four people. Number one is their status. What is their status? Number two, what is their brokenness? What is their brokenness? And then number three, and this is a weird one, but I, I find it fascinating. One of the reasons why I love this chapter, what is their posture? What is their status? Like, how do people think of them? What, what, would, what would the townsfolk think of them? What would other people view them as? What's their status? Two, what's their brokenness? Now, brokenness is not always something that you can see from the outside. What's their status? What's their brokenness? And then number three, what's their posture? You ready? We're going to look for those three things with these four people. First, this man with the unclean spirit, you can see his uh, status is he has what? Let's see if it works. <gasps> Uh-oh. John Madden would not be pleased. I know what I did wrong. It's just a tool. <laughs> and we're going to be bored of it in a couple of weeks, but I hope it helps us. So he gets out of the boat. As Jesus gets out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the what? Right? Unclean spirit comes out of the tombs, right? Okay, so where does this guy live? The cemetery. Even today, like, do, you need, uh, do we need some help understanding how messed up this is, or can we just move on? Like, is this messed up? Yeah, is, is this guy considered to be wealthy or powerful or influential? 
No, okay, so what's his status from the townsfolk? He's an outcast. You with me? This guy has been cast out of his city. He's an outcast. Nonetheless, uh, moreover, I should say, is he is tormented. Look at this. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always what? Crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is tormented. Moreover, he would have been considered by any Jewish rabbi to be unclean because where did he live? In the tombs. Now, I want you to remember that, okay? I want you to remember, he's in the tombs. Now, what made tombs unclean? Now, in this particular society, in, this, in Jesus' culture, the Jewish culture, touching a dead body would have rendered you what was called ceremonially or ritually unclean. There were certain washings you had to do. You weren't allowed to go to certain places because death was unclean. And here's this man, and where does he live? In the tombs. Not only is he tormented by an unclean spirit, he himself is rendered unclean by his society, an outcast. And what does he do? He comes up to Jesus. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, what did he do? Tell me. He ran, okay? And what, it, what were the three questions? We asked what his status was. We've already discussed his status. He has none. Number two, what's his brokenness? He's tormented. Screaming and crying out and cutting himself. He's tormented by an unclean spirit. And number three, what's his posture? He knelt down before him. Now, this is interesting because what happens next as he cries out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God. Now this is interesting. Who's talking here? Now this is interesting because Mark, he, he, he interweaves the voice of the man from the tombs with the voice of the unclean spirit, showing just how deeply our demons can be within us. And here, the unclean spirit speaks to Jesus. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I, I what? I beg you before God, don't. Now, this isn't funny, but it's funny. What's happened to this man is not funny. But what is this unclean spirit begging Jesus not to do? What is the thing that the unclean spirit is doing to the man? And so Jesus casts out the demon. In fact, we find that it's multiple demons. The text says that it was legion demons beyond measure or count. And so Jesus addresses the man's brokenness right at its point of power. And he casts out this demon, this unclean spirit. Now the townspeople, what's interesting is the townspeople, they see this, they see the man in his right mind, dressed and behaving like a normal person. And they're freaking out. Why? Why would the townspeople be freaking out? Because they remember what this guy used to do. He would scream out and cut himself. He was so powerful, they kicked him out of their city because he was a threat. And now here he is made whole again. What kind of a power could do that? And the townspeople plead with Jesus, please leave. And so Jesus gets back in the boat. Now, 
Uh, this is something else that's interesting. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, uh, last week, remember that Jesus on the boat ride, winds and waves, the disciples are freaking out. Jesus is on the boat, he goes over, he has one encounter. He encounters this man. And then what does he do? He gets back in the boat and goes back. Was that a waste of a trip? It's interesting to me. It may well have been that Jesus got in the boat and brought his disciples along just to have one encounter with one tormented soul. What links will Jesus go to to visit with you and call you out from among the tombs? So he gets back in the boat and then he goes back to the other side and when he lands, lo and behold, someone else come and running after him. It says one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. And so Jesus went with him. Now, here we're introduced to two new characters. The first one is this person named Jairus. Now, what was his status? You guys got me here? He's a leader, okay? What type of a leader? I know that's a funny word, right? Like, it looks kind of weird. Don't worry, I'll say it out loud. It's a synagogue, okay? So he's one of the synagogue leaders. Now, what's a synagogue? A synagogue is a center of religious uh, order and practices and power. So to be a synagogue leader would have been to be a person of influence. You with me? Probably a person of power. Now, what we know from the text is that Jairus was a family man. He had a wife and children. Moreover, he had a house with multiple rooms. He was a man of means a man of influence, a man of power. Now, what does Jairus do? His status is as a leader. What's his brokenness? He goes to Jesus and begs him earnestly, my little daughter is what? All of his power, all of his influence cannot help his beloved daughter. He made all the money, he got all the social networks up and running. He's so well connected. He knows all the doctors. He, he, he's, he's one of the people who donated to the hospital and has got his plaque on the wall, but all of that will not save his daughter. He's helpless. He, now, this is interesting. What's his posture? Daughter, okay, so one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he... Oh, that's interesting. Fell at his feet. Remember uh, the man in the land of the Gerasenes who came out from among the tombs? He was broken and helpless, was he not? And what was his posture? When he sees Jesus, he runs up to Jesus and he falls at his feet. Jairus and the man who lived among the tombs at the end of the day are the same. Though all of us on the outside might look at their status and view them differently. When the weight of the world comes crashing in on their shoulders, they are the same, and they take the same posture. We're introduced to a third character, namely a daughter. Now, we're gonna have to uh, kind of uh, deduce some things here. Whose daughter is she? Jairus. Jairus's daughter, okay? And what type of uh, status did Jairus have? Leader, high status. In, in our culture, Children of someone with status generally are also treated as someone with status. Is that right? Okay. It's one, and, and in fact, to some degree, it's one of the systemic issues we have in our culture is because people who are born into poverty are also treated as less. 
And it's no different in this culture. She would have been someone, although she was only, the text says that she was 12 years old. We don't know exactly how much she understood her status to be, but we know probably that she knew that her daddy loved her. The fact that Jairus would run out and fall down in front of Jesus would have been a huge taboo. Here's this leader who's supposed to be leading us, and what does he do? He's helpless, and he falls at Jesus' feet. I believe that the text is showing us that he loves his daughter, and it's likely that she would have known how much she was loved. But what is her brokenness? She's dying. There's nothing that her daddy can do except go to the Lord. And so he does. And so it says that Jesus went with him. Let's keep going. Now a woman, okay, so they're on their way to Jairus' house. Okay, get the scene in your mind. Jairus, some of his people, Jesus, the disciples, they're walking from wherever they left the boat over to whose house? Jairus' house. Why are they going there? Because his daughter is what? Dying. Is that a big deal if you're Jairus? Is that an urgent and important need if you're Jairus? Okay. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for how long? Oh, that's interesting. That's going to come back up later, I'll bet. A woman suffering from bleeding for how long? 12 years. Had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything that she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Here's this woman. She spent everything that she had on trying to find healing. It's likely that she's destitute at this point in time. Here's this woman. She is considered to be an outcast because just like the man who lived among the tombs was considered to be unclean, so too were people who came into contact with blood. And what is her disease? What is her affliction? Her affliction causes her to have a constant flow of blood, rendering her constantly unclean according to the society around her. She would have likely been considered to be untouchable. You see some of that in the fact that she doesn't go up and touch Jesus, nor does she ask Jesus to touch her. It's highly likely that she has hardwired her mind to recognize that men don't touch me. We're not allowed to do that here because I'm an unclean person. Rather, she reaches out and touches his cloak. It's likely that she recognizes that she is a loner, not because she wants to be, but because no one will touch her. This woman, it's highly likely, and I'm going to just give you my opinion, it's highly likely that this woman has not been hugged for 12 years. And friends, there are some of us here today who share that same experience. So watch what Jesus does. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. Did you catch that? Touch his what? Clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, this is fast. This is happening fast. Remember, Jairus, his leaders, Jesus, and the disciples, they're all walking to whose house? Jairus' house. Why? Because his daughter is what? dying. This is urgent and important. And this woman there is is between the boat and the house. And here comes Jesus. And she thinks, if I could just reach out and touch his cloak, then I'll be healed. She reaches out, touches his cloak. And what happens? She's healed. But then something happens that is striking. Jesus stops, recognizing that power has come out from him. And he was looking around to see who had done this. And the woman with what? 
fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came, and what was her posture? And told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Now, TV time out. You're Jairus. And Jesus is having a conversation with a woman who could easily wait another 30 minutes. She's been sick for 12 years. What's another half of a day? There are many of us who are angry at God because he is not doing what we ask in the time frame that we ask him. Many of us, like Jairus, are sitting there seeing my dying daughter. Jesus, where are you? Why are you stopping, bro? It's like when the ambulance is taking your daughter to the hospital and they pull over for a Big Mac. Someone's going to get throat punched if that happens to me. Right? That can wait. This can't. But look at Jesus. Look at what he does. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, his worst fears. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And when Jesus overheard what he said, he told the synagogue leader, do not be afraid. Only what? Believe. Now, at this point, we can answer a question that we asked at the beginning. What type of people does Jesus call? So there are many of us here who are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, and we're wondering, am I the type of person who Jesus calls to be his disciple? And the answer, according to Mark 5, is yes. You say, but you don't know how broken I am. I don't, but Jesus does. What type of person does Jesus call? Everyone, even broken people, there ain't no other type of people. Like, you look at Jairus, and from the outside looking in, that guy looks like he's super successful. But he's broken. All of his wealth can't do what he wants most. Of course, the man among the tombs and the woman with the chronic disease, we, we recognize their level of brokenness and even perhaps the little girl, but I want you to see this key truth. What type of people does Jesus call? He calls broken people because there ain't no other kind of people. Now, what does Jesus call the people that he calls? What does he call the people that he calls? Now, I want you to see this. Do you remember Jesus and the demon-possessed man, the man with the unclean spirit, that Jesus attacked his point of brokenness head on? He was very direct. And in all of these situations, Jesus is very direct at the presenting problem, but occasionally he hints at a deeper problem or a deeper issue that needs to be healed. And so we're going to ask this question, what does he call them? And we're going to go back a little bit. First, he was with the demon-possessed man. Then he gets on the boat and comes back to the other side, and he runs into Jairus. And while Jairus and him are headed to Jairus' house to heal his, wait, who did Jairus want healed? daughter. And how old was she? Okay, she was 12. That's interesting. Um, and, and this woman, this woman with the chronic disease, how long had she had that disease, according to Mark chapter 5? 12 years. That's, that's fascinating. Maybe that Mark, the author, is trying to tease something out here. Uh, let me ask you this. How much, how much does Jairus love his daughter? What is Jairus willing to do for his daughter? Now, I want you to see 
what Jesus does with this woman who's an outcast, this broken woman. He was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and what? Fell down. And he told, and told him the whole truth. Now, first of all, I want you to see that that's risky business. This woman has just crossed and transgressed a huge cultural taboo. She stopped the rabbi. Hmm? She got in close proximity with a crowd, likely rendering all of them unclean if they happened to brush up against her. No, people like you are to stay away, they likely would have said to her. And what does Jesus do? He stops, and then what does he do? Okay, let me ask you this. If you're that woman, you feel the healing hit you, what's the last thing you want to have happen? You don't want to be recognized, right? You want to slip back into the crowd. You want to take your healing and go, right? And what does Jesus do? Hey, you! Come here! And with fear and trembling, she comes out to Jesus and tells him the whole truth. Now, why is she afraid? She's not only afraid of Jesus because of the power. She's not only feeling fear and trembling because of the power that Jesus has displayed. I want you to see this. Who is she afraid of being judged by and cast out by and scoffed by and mocked by and abused by? Who's she afraid of? At her center, what type of brokenness does she have? It is not simply a medical issue. Who is she to those people? An outcast, a nobody, a nothing, a broken, throwaway person. And what is Jesus? Remember how direct Jesus is, right? What does he call her? What type of people does Jesus call? Broken people, because there ain't no other kind of people. And what does he call them? Not project, not student, not follower, not person trying real hard. He calls them son and daughter. Romans 8, 15 and 16, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Remember, what was she living in in that moment? Rather, the spirit you received brought about your, what's the word? Adoption. Sonship is a legal term to talk about. You're just 100% the child of God. There's no like foster care in God's family. There's just your his. Pure adoption. And by him we cry. What do we cry when we speak to our God? Not, not simply, oh God, not simply, oh Lord, not simply king creator of the universe. Abba, a tender term. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? You see, the brokenness that all of these four figures have is not predominantly external. It's their, who they are. They were using their status or their brokenness to define who they were. And Jesus shows them that you are defined by me, your Father. Who defines you? Who are you? 
One author says it this way, you have the love and acceptance and delight of the king and creator of the universe. Who cares what all the paupers think? Who are you? Jesus calls you son and daughter. It is not our brokenness, things that we've done or things that, we, that have done, been done to us that form our identity, nor is it our status that forms our identity. It is Jesus. Now, what did it cost him? Remember, that was the last question. What does it cost him? There's a hint in the text, although the text doesn't explicitly state it. I said my favorite chapter was Mark 5, and it is my favorite chapter in the Gospel of Mark, but it's not the most powerful. But there's a hint in chapter 5 that's going to point us where we need to be looking. You'll notice that Jesus, remember, he stops and he heals the woman and he calls her out and he says, daughter, do you remember? And then the the servants come from Jairus' house and they say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. And what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid, believe. And then they go to the house and they see people weeping and wailing. And Jesus goes upstairs. He sends everybody else outside and he goes upstairs and he He sits to the, and I want to be clear, he sits next to a corpse. Okay, where do you put corpses? You put them in tombs. And why are tombs unclean? Because they contain dead bodies. And if you touch a dead body, you're to be considered unclean as well. And so far, Jesus has been approached by and has been among a man from among the tombs, unclean and outcast a woman who's got a chronic disease that would have rendered her in that culture unclean and outcast. And he has, calls her into relationship. And now here, far from just saying, your daughter is healed, go ahead, he walks up to the room. And he takes the child, what? By the hand. And he says to her, what? Now, in the Gospel of Mark, there are a handful of times where the Aramaic is directly quoted At the end of the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus on the cross, and Mark records the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke. He quotes him directly, and then he translates it. It seems like Jesus, when when Mark, the author, translates, or excuse me, uh, quotes Jesus directly, he feels compelled for some reason to show you that there's a depth here. There's an intimacy in this conversation. Perhaps he's inviting us into the room to where we can hear the actual words that Jesus spoke, not just a translation. You with me? And he says to her, Talitha kum. Those were the actual words that he spoke. Talitha kum, and then Mark translates it for us, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now that sounds weird to us. Little girl, I say to you, get up, right? I do that to my kids all the time. (laughs) Now, Talitha kum does mean that, but it's a tender, intimate, honey, honey, it's time to get up now. Perhaps that's happened to you. Honey, hey, buddy, son, daughter, it's time to get up now. And that little girl immediately got up and began to walk. But she died again. And so did Jairus. And so did the woman with the flow of blood. And so did the man who had the unclean spirit. 
for our brokenness runs deeper than just the things that have happened to us right now. All will lay one last time when death takes us. And there's a song that says, we are the sons and we are the daughters of God and he will never forsake his own. And later in the Gospel of Mark, you see that Jesus himself, in order to raise the little girl, he himself had to go into death. In order to call the man out from the tomb, he was put into a tomb. In order to heal the woman of her physical affliction, he allowed himself to be stricken and afflicted. In order to reunite Jairus with his daughter, he had to feel the forsakenness of the father. You see, this text points us to what we find in the end of Mark's gospel, that Jesus, God in the flesh, was crucified, and he died and was buried for you and for me. What did it cost him to call us sons and daughters? It cost him everything. But Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. That's why we are here bound together as a church family, and that is why you and I can rest in the hope that though we may one day die, there will be a new day where he takes us by the hand and says, little girl, it's time to get up now. Would you join me as we pray?